millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week, we're chatting to Jenny Fields. Her new novel is Atomic Love. Uh, it's been pretty big over the summer. I think every bookshop I've been in, more or less, it's been right there as soon as you open the door, front and centre. Uh, it's a spy drama and a love story at the same time. It's set in 1950s Chicago. We talk about her idyllic, uber-luxurious writing setup she's got going on over in the States. Also, you can hear about why a family connection drew her to the story. And we chat about the most mind-boggling of concepts which I, I think always trips writers up, the tenses. I often start with present tense because I love the immediacy of present tense. But sometimes I try, I almost always try it at some point in, in past tense because that is the common way to tell a tale. And I usually go back to first tense, you know, to present tense. So I go back and forth a bit, but I need to have a voice in order to start. See, it's really tough to explain. Uh, more with Jenny Fields. It's a brilliant episode. It's on the way in this week's writer's routine. Yes, welcome along to writer's routine. Now, sponsoring the show this week uh, are a couple of fantastic creators writers and illustrators they're an amazing dynamic duo you always have to say dynamic duo when there's two of them don't you Uh, they've brought out a new book in the amazing nothing to see here hotel series they are Stephen butler and Stephen lenton they've worked together on these stories for a while now and they're about a hotel full of monsters and grims and ghouls Uh, and if you have kids kids that love their stories or maybe they don't at the moment and they're having trouble getting into books and they're having trouble getting into books uh, i promise these will really help out the new one is called the fiend of the seven sewers and frankie bannister in this one he gets dragged into the depths of the sewers under the city on a mission from the mysterious boss frankie uh, he pretty much runs the nothing to see here hotel which is a safe haven for magical beings of all form. And it's come out perfect for Halloween, really. Um, Stephen Butler, he is he's the writer on this. He's done the words. He's been on this show before, actually. He was one of the very first guests that we had. And he's worked on all sorts. He's worked with James Patterson. He brought back Dennis the Menace. He's been shortlisted for the Roald Dahl Funny Prize. He's half the team. 
You've got Stephen Lenton is the other half. He's a mesmerising illustrator. His works on these books are seriously incredible. That's what I mean. If you're if you know a young person who isn't really into words at the moment, the the, the pictures and it, the illustrations are amazing. He's worked with David Bedil with Frank Cosroy Boyce, also been on this show, uh, and he and the other Stephen they make a brilliant creative team on this. I really think this is one of the best books to to get a, a reluctant reader um, loving words again. Really, I think they call it mid grade. It's a lot of fun. It's it's a brilliant story. Uh, it twists and it turns. It really does drag you in. It's amazing. Perfectly timed for Halloween. Now, like so many creatives at the moment, 2020 has been tough. So if you are in the market for some Halloween kids books, if you have kids, if you have nephews, nieces, grandkids who could do with some monster magic and a real laugh, uh, try out the new one. Give it a go. It's from Stephen Butler and Stephen Lenton. It's The Fiend of the Seven Sewers in the Nothing to See Here Hotel series. You can grab a copy of it. Um, in uh, We've got a link in the podcast notes for you and over at writersroutine.com. Now, every week on the show, we chat to an author. We take a peek into their working day to see how they get ideas from their head onto the page, where they do it and when they do it as well. This week, we're chatting to Jenny Fields. She's just published her fifth novel. It's Atomic Love. It's all about Rosalind, who works on the Manhattan Project, which was the mission to make nuclear weapons. Um, She then gets recruited to the FBI, where she gets embroiled in a love affair. It's set in 1950s Chicago. Now, being born in the 90s in home counties, Britain, I mean, I don't really know much about 1950s Chicago, but it does evoke a feeling, doesn't it? You imagine noir and rain and wind and mystery. And we talk about how she delivers that with the words she gets down on the page. We also talk about why she works best in the afternoon, how much of her story she plans, how she brings ideas and loose threads together, and how it's really the characters that keep her going as well. And we get into it, as we always do, with what Jenny sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. Okay, I happen to be in that room right now. Um, My writing room used to be an old sleeping porch. So in 1930, when the house was built, uh, there was no air conditioning. And Nashville is a very warm place in the summertime. So it has 12 windows and a glass door. So you can open all the windows and the breeze would blow through and the entire family would sleep on the sleeping porch in the summertime. So it's quite large. It's like um, maybe about 17 by 16 or something like that. And um, it's all around me are trees and uh, green and a lot of glass, and the sun comes in in the afternoons. And I, I write in a, uh, a very comfortable chair with an ottoman. Yeah, so I put my feet up, I put my laptop on my lap, and that's how I write. Oh, sounds very relaxed. Talk to me about, um, let me bring you inside the room. So you're there in your comfy chair with your ottoman. Uh, uh, is there art on the walls, bookshelves lined with, with, with stuff? There is uh, an entire wall, a very long wall of bookshelves uh, crammed to the gill with books that I love, uh, especially my favorites are nearer to the chair where I work. And uh, there is also a a comfy uh, 
uh, L-shaped sofa in one corner in case I need to be even more relaxed. (laughs) And there is art propped up along the bookshelf. And it is the only wall that isn't windows because it's three walls of windows. So um, the one wall that isn't windows is all bookcases. And art, I have one, two, three, four paintings propped up against the uh, bookshelves. If I were to walk into this amazing sounding uh, room, I have to say, would I have any idea as to what you're writing at the time? Would I see uh, post-it notes? Would I see a big whiteboard? Have you got research books everywhere? I do tend to uh, keep the research books that I'm using at the time in one place near my chair. Um, So you know, when I was working on Atomic Love, you would have seen a lot of books about atomic spies, about the making of the atomic bomb, about um, PTSD and uh, the POWs in Japan. And those are all near me. Um, so now I'm about to work on something um, about the American civil rights movement. So I'm just starting to pull some books on that. So those are around me now. But always, always, I have to say, always above my chair is Edith Wharton, because she's my favorite author. Do you know Edith Wharton? I'm I'm awful with any kind of named authors. So tell us about it. (laughs) Edith Wharton uh, was a writer who was born in uh, the 1860s and died in 1935. And she wrote The Age of Innocence. And she wrote House of Mirth, uh, which were the Age of Innocence. She was the first female Pulitzer Prize winner for the Age of Innocence in 1920. Um, and she is just my spirit animal. I mean, I, I absolutely adore her writing. So I have uh, probably 30 of her 40 books uh, behind me, always. Let me take you. This is going to get very niche and quite nerdy, Jenny. We've gone around your room. Now you're sat in the chair. Uh what are you writing on? Is it a laptop? What program are you using? And then what font do you use? Uh, so I'm using a laptop and I am using Word, which I'm just used to and have used for many years. Um, and uh, I I don't know what a, what, what, what was the third question? Oh, a font, so a typeface. <laughs> oh, a font. Oh, okay. Well, um, I do tend to like Cambria. I don't know why, but I find it very soothing to write with Cambria. I always write with a font that has a serif because I find it uh, easier on my eyes somehow and a little bit more warm than a sans serif type. By the way, I love, um, uh, (laughs) this isn't anything against, but when I chat to American authors, right, I, I, they always do the same. I will say something and then I go, I don't understand what that means. And then they say exactly the same thing, just a bit louder. <laughs> it happens all the time. Like, well, sorry, what did you, a font? Oh, a font. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's glorious. It happens every time. I'm pleased that you've gone through with that. Uh, well, listen, Jenny, the show is called Writer's Routine. So talk us through yours if you can. It's the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed on a day when you are sat down to write. How does it look? Okay, so uh, I do all my errands in the morning. So, but the first thing I do is I get up, I get dressed and I walk my dog probably unless it's super hot or super cold, I'll walk her at least two miles. 
um, sometimes two and a half. And if I'm really feeling energetic, three. And then I bring her back and I feed her and I do all sorts of kind of errand-like things in the morning, sometimes in the house, sometimes out of the house, these days less so because of the pandemic. And then uh, about, so then I have lunch and after lunch, I usually take a very short nap. Um, I've always been a napper. Even when I was working full time in advertising, everybody knew after lunch to leave me alone. My door was closed. I was napping. So, um, and then I usually read something while I sip a cup of tea. And um, around two o'clock, 2.30, I start to write. And um, I usually write till about five or 5.30 when I have to start making dinner. I really can't write more than three hours unless the muse has me by the throat, which sometimes that happens. And if that's the case, I don't care what I eat for dinner or if anybody else eats, they'll have to take care of themselves. <laughs> but um I uh, then I'll just keep writing because it's so rare to get that, you know, wind under your wings and you don't want to lose it. Um, But generally, I'm I'm smartest between two, two thirty and five thirty. That's when my brain is really clicking. At what point did you figure out you work best in the afternoon? Many writers I speak to are almost the reverse and, and they wake up and they get their words down because then they know it's done. And, and they would, they will put off doing chores, doing groceries until much later. Uh, Why do you think you're an afternoon person? Well, I'm definitely not a morning person. So um, it's, you know, I guess I've always known that. Uh, Also, interestingly, because I was in advertising for so many years, I'm, I'm really good at advertising in the morning for some reason, starting at about nine o'clock. That's when I can do that kind of thinking. It's very logical, but it's also got to be creative, but in a different way than uh, the kind of writing that I do from fiction. When I'm writing fiction, I'm really trying to reach into my subconscious and, you know, um, I really have to go into a bit of a trance to get a good writing day. And I just can't do that in the morning. I'm very, I'm in my, my, you know, which is, I don't know, can't remember if it's left brain or right brain is the logical part, but I'm in my logical part of my brain in the morning. In the afternoon, I get more fanciful and I'm just not a morning person in, in that way. So I've just discovered over time and I've been doing it long enough that it's very clear to me I'm a better writer of fiction in the in the afternoon, particularly late afternoon. When you sit down to write at two two thirty, how easy do you find it is to tap into that that trance like state that you described? Um, it's always a challenge to some degree, um, and you know that's why I usually start by reading. I I know that when I um, that when I read someone else's work before I read my own, which I always do start my writing session by reading through what I wrote yesterday. And um, if I read someone else's work first, I become uh, more distanced and less critical of my own. And I allow it, I, I'm able to look at it as writing as opposed to something, you know, as someone else's writing. I'm able to enjoy it understand it 
and see it more clearly than I might have otherwise, because I'm a reader. I become a reader um, and not just somebody who's, uh, you know, my inner editor can be very noisy and I try to shut her up sometimes so I can go forward. So um, it just, it it really depends on the day and I can never tell what kind of day it's going to be. I might be full of ideas and I sit down and none of them want to come out. It's hard to know. Are there any things that you do that force those ideas to come out just a little bit when they absolutely have to? Yeah, I um, I I read Edith Wharton because she really does inspire me. Um, and I just find reading her particularly gives me that jolt. Um, but there, here's an interesting thought. Um, I'm very good friends with Ann Patchett. Um, she and I walk our dogs together every night. And she once said something to me that was just brilliant, I thought, and so true. And she said, you know, those days when you're just working and working and you can't get it out, but you just keep working anyway. And, you know, in time you rewrite it, whatever. And then there's those days that you're just brilliant and it just flows and it's wonderful Well, in the end, and you look back, you can't remember which is which. And she's so right. I mean, sometimes you just have to put in the perspiration because the inspiration isn't there. And sometimes you just have to do it anyway. Even if you only get 10 sentences down that you think are just okay, later you're going to fix them and you have to just plow forward. You know, I'm not the type of person who's got a stopwatch and a number of pages that needs to be done. I'm just not that sort of person. And because I worked for years in advertising and I had a a daughter to raise by myself for most of those years, I um, am just happy to sit down and do what I can in the amount of time I have. So I try not to put extra pressure on myself that way. I don't find that helps me at all. Um, What helps me is just knowing that every day I have a routine, I sit down, I get it done, whether it's good or not, I do my work. And I think that's more important than telling myself, you need five pages by six o'clock. That's just never going to help me at all. What does make up a good day for you though, Jenny? I know you're not you're not saying, right, I need to get my five pages down. But uh, if you could have um, an ideal, you know, uh, an ideal middle of the road working day, not too much, not pie in the sky, but what would you hope to get down when you do start? Oh, if I get five or six good pages, I feel like I won the lottery. That's great. And some some days I've written 10, you know, if I'm really inspired, but it's it's rare. And are you, when you sit down, to, are, you, are you picking up where you left off the day before? Yes. Well, I always read through what I wrote the day before, at least, if not a little bit further back, because I want to get the flow. I want to get the tone. I want to get the voice that I'm working with clear in my head. Now, this is your what, this is your fifth novel right now, yeah? Yes. Atomic mm-hmm. Love. Um, so you're, you're kind of, I would imagine, in the um, in the zone, in the circuit of having an idea, knowing when to start it, knowing when your first draft needs to be done. Um, can you talk us through that, if it's all right, Jenny? So when you have an idea, how long do you let it linger and percolate? When will you start to write it? When will you hope that gets done so you can hand in a draft to a publisher? Well, um, 
I don't know that there's a set answer to that. Um, you know, for instance, right now, I am working through where I'm going to begin this new book. And I, um, last night at 1130, I just had the muse visited and I just typed myself a long letter, which basically was the first page of I'm hoping my next book. And so um, I don't know when that's going to come. I try to spend a lot of time thinking about my characters. I start with characters. So that's very important to me. And a voice, that's very important to me. And you have to begin somewhere. Sometimes you don't end up there at all. Um, so I don't, I can't tell you how I know it's the time when it's going to work for me. I just know it when I am caught up in it, when I want to know more about it, when I want to take that journey to find out what this book is. Now, we're here to talk about Atomic Love. So let's try and remember that journey. Um, Tell me about the moment, Jenny, where the idea for what became Atomic Love first came into your mind. How did it present itself? Well, I had always wanted to write about a woman uh, in the 1940s who was a scientist who had somehow lost science. And the reason I wanted to write about that is my mother was a scientist. She was a biochemist doing very important cancer research. And when she got married, and this was, you know, in 1948, she was required, required really to give up her career. And it just bothered her the rest of her life. I mean, she really had this sense of mourning that she had given up this important career, um, you know, because they felt the GIs deserve the jobs, the women should be having babies. So I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write about the Manhattan Project, which was the creation of the atomic bomb, because her cousin had worked on the Manhattan Project. And um, I, I, suddenly had this thought that what if a woman who worked on the Manhattan Project was asked by the FBI to spy on someone to find out if they're selling secrets to the Russians? And it just came as a great rush for me. I mean, I have to say this was an unusual novel in that I wrote 100 pages in a month on this book. And um, it slowed down after that, but I, it was really rather incredible to me that that happened. That doesn't happen very often. And one of the main characters, Charlie, who is probably my favorite character in the book came to me whole cloth. I knew everything about him before I even put my hands on the keyboard. Um, I knew he was six foot seven and that he was from the Polish neighborhood in Chicago and that he had been a prisoner of war in Japan. I just knew everything everything about him and it was very strange i don't know where it came from life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs learn more at uh1.com hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We're back with more from Jenny in just a sec. Uh, This week's episode of the show is sponsored by the brand new book by Stephen Butler and Stephen Lenton. It is the fourth in the Nothing to See Here Hotel series. It's the Fiend of the Seven Sewers. If you would like your book to sponsor the show, we've got some gaps at the end of November. You can get involved. You just need to support us over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. If your book launch has been like a little bit of a damp squib because of everything in 2020, uh, if you want everyone to know about the thing that you have worked so hard on, I can try and help out with that. I'll certainly give it a good old plug, a big old shout out. You can make that happen on our Patreon page. You can also get thanks, you can get merch, and and it's a way of saying thanks, I guess, for over 120 chats that we've brought you with some of the world's greatest authors. If you've learned anything along the way which has helped the way that you write, the way that you get ideas and plan your day, please show us support. Doesn't need to be a lot. They say the price of a cup of coffee every month, just a dollar or so a month. It really helps out over on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Yeah, sorry about the accent. Let's get back to it then with more from Jenny Fields in this week's Writer's Routine. Her new book is Atomic Love. We chat more about it, more about Rosalind in this half. We talk about the ending, how much she thinks about it, how much she considers what the readers want from it as well. Also, you can hear about how she plays with the genre, how she picks, how she chooses what she wants from it, uh, and also how she knows she has to fulfil some expectation when she is writing genre. And we pick things up talking about the new book, Atomic Love. Where did that very first idea come from? You know, I really don't know. Um, it clearly came from my subconscious. So something was working there. Uh, I knew that I wanted to write about two people with broken wings who find each other and help each other heal. That was an important beginning for me. It was something that I had been thinking about for a while, um, how injured people can either injure each other or they can heal each other. And so I guess I must have been somehow working on that. I knew he needed to be a very injured person. And Charlie has the, has lost the use of one of his hands while, by torture um, from his time in a POW camp. And um, he's also got terrible PTSD. Um, so those were, you know, I needed an injured person that you really like and that you care for and that you're rooting for. And Rosalind too is an injured person in her own way. Um, So I don't know where, you know, it's like, it's amazing what your subconscious does when you're not paying attention. When you've got that, when you've got that first idea for atomic love and and these things are rushing towards you, um, what's the next step then, Jenny? What do you have to do before you do sit down in your armchair and start typing things up? How do you flesh out this idea first? Well, um, 
You know, a lot of it comes out of the actual writing of it. I don't, I'm not one of those people who outlines everything and knows what's going to happen at all. In fact, if that were the case, I'd be bored out of my mind because I write to find out what's going to happen. Um, so the first thing that I have to do when I sit down or right before I sit down is decide who's going to be speaking. Is it going to be first person or third person? Um, and I almost always start with first person and I often end with third person. I mean, because I, I go back and forth and I try it. I often start with present tense because I love the immediacy of present tense, but sometimes I try, I I almost always try it at some point in, in past tense, because that is the common way to tell a tale and I usually go back to first tense, you know, to present tense. So I go back and forth a bit, but I need to have a voice in order to start um, a book. And so once I have, you know, a concept of, oh, I'm going to start in present tense with a first person voice. And that's how I started Atomic Love. That's not where I ended up. I ended up in third person with present tense. But having gone through that process of doing the first person, I got a real close voice to the person who I wanted to be close to. And it really helped me a lot because you get, you know, a a real personality that a lot of third person writing doesn't have. Um, So that works for me. And how much do you plot? And I know you said that you're discovering this as your characters are finding it out. How much do you know about, I guess, the shape of the story, where this is heading before you you really kick things off and get going? Not much. I really don't know much. I really let it come out of the characters. So this is what I do when I write a novel. I try to create uh, characters I care about and I give them an insoluble problem that I let them solve for me. And that way it feels organic to the characters and I'm not just putting them through the paces I choose them to go through, but they go, they do what they would do and they solve it for me. I want to pick up on, you mentioned something earlier about how you needed uh, Charlie uh, to be, to be injured because you need the audience to the readers to, um, well, I guess empathize and root for him. Um, what other decisions, quite analytical decisions, have you made while storytelling? What do you know about ways to, to get the readers on, on side and, and stay with you? Well, one thing I learned over time is that readers tend to care about characters who care about others. So if a character is just a, a horrible, you know, uh, misanthrope and doesn't like other people, you're not going to really like that person. And um, your main character has to be somebody who has some passion, some longing, some goal that somehow has been thwarted or, and they must love somebody. They must have some care in their heart for someone who's there or who is no longer there but that's going to make you like that character more. So Rosalind um, adores her niece and um, 
she she feels very close to her brother-in-law and they're very important characters in the book because they're people who matter deeply to her and make her think about what's important in life and uh you know charlie loves his family his sister he's very close to his sister um and he once loved a woman who really kicked him in the teeth and she he can't shake that off and that shows that he's vulnerable and caring and and those are the kind of things that i think are very important to bake into the characters that you create if you want your reader to like them now i'm sorry to uh to harp on about this i'm just really curious as to when ideas come to writers quite often an author will describe the um the 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 way that they tell stories as as a road trip so you're in your car you know where you're kicking off um when do you have an idea where you when you want this to end when things are going to come together and you found your final destination well uh you know i usually have some concept at least halfway through where I'm going and where it needs to end, but I'm not entirely clear. When the pace begins to pick up, when um, you see that the characters are heading towards their own proper conclusion with each other, then I start to taste the ending. And I'm, I'm not always sure, you know, how much more needs to be written, how, uh, where I'm going to, actually end um but the characters tell me you know um and let's face it there are no perfect answers you could create an ending and you think it's just great and then other people don't um so i think it's just a matter of what feels right while you're writing it how much does that play a part in in the way you write um any concern for how readers might think about the way that you've told the story, the way that you're finishing things off? I think I think more about it after people are reading it. And I think, oh, they did, if they didn't like that ending, should I have changed it? You know? <laughs> but when I'm writing it, it, I have to see what feels right to me. And I am just a huge rewriter. I mean, I have to say that I rewrote Atomic Love literally 10 times. I mean, expansive changes. So um, it just changes as it goes along as well. What? Why were you constantly changing it? What needed to be tweaked in between drafts? I, you know, I would realize I was missing something or I, you know, it's interesting because I tend to write in layers. So my first layer gives you the basics about the characters but as I write, I understand them better. I understand their backstories better. I understand what they're really aiming to do and what stops them from doing it. Um, I, I psychologically delve deeper with each um, layer and with each rewrite. And so it isn't until, you know, I've done it a number of times that I really feel the book has the depth and interest that I want it to have. And the other thing I do is I crisp it up and I cut. I'm always like the person who cuts maybe even more than she should. I like things to be very readable and very clean. And any extra words, I just want to just pull right out of it. Why is that? Well, I, I guess it's just my style. Uh, you know, <laughs> I grew up with uh, 
with Hemingway as one of, uh, you know, my favorite writers. And while I don't think I write at all like Hemingway, I also just think that clarity comes out of, you know, simplicity. I, I just, I'm not Henry James, you know, I don't want to obfuscate what I really want to say. I want it to be crystalline and clear and simple and clean. And I guess it's just the way that I've always written. It's the way that we all talked about writing when I went to the Iowa Writers Workshop, which was the big writing school here in America and still is. It's just the way that I've learned to write and I admire writing that's very clean. I tend to be a a genre bender in a way. I don't I don't go with I think what is expected. Um but on the other hand, I know if it's going to be a spy drama, there have to be surprises in the plot. I am, you know, since I am not a plot-based writer, that is not the most important part to me. And I suppose if you came to Atomic Love wanting to read just a spy drama, you're going to be surprised and possibly disappointed because it's not going to have the guns and it's not going to have the, you know, the secret uh, special devices, and it's not going to be James Bond. That's just not what I'm writing. Um, So, but yes, I did need to be more plot oriented with this book than I normally am. And I needed you to be surprised by some things that happen. And so that was a real challenge to me because I am not particularly a reader of spy dramas, but I wanted her to be in a situation where she has to make some decisions and they're complex and um and things happen you don't expect how did you help her make those decisions if you as you said aren't a big spy drama reader uh, what research were you doing to help Rosalind along well I don't um while I'm not a big spy drama reader I also didn't want it to be just a normal spy drama I wanted it to be much more of a psychological drama so um I think I am comfortable with psychological drama. Um, (laughs) So I don't quite know how to answer your question. Um, Yeah, I think I just came organically out of the story. um, And I tried to make the plot surprising in various points where she's at moments of jeopardy, at moments of surprise. She comes home and her apartment has been completely tossed by somebody who's looking for something. You know, I, she needs to have moments where she thinks I'm really in this deep. How did I get here? Now I mentioned what readers expect from a spy drama and a love story. Uh, Another thing that evokes, I guess, an expectation or at least a thought is a 1950s Chicago. When I read that, when I read those words, I don't know why, but in my head, it's, um, it's wet. It's really wet and drizzly and, and windy as well. And people might be a bit grizzly. Uh, there's an atmosphere there, I guess, is what I'm saying, Jenny, uh, which you need to drag me into with your words on the page. How much are you thinking about the words that you're using to bring this atmosphere to me? Well, uh, I grew up in Chicago, and so um, I and I love Chicago. I think of this book as a bit of a love a love poem to Chicago. Um, 
it is very important that I create that 1950s atmosphere that I make you feel like you are there. Um, I write it, it's set during the summer. So it, uh, there are parts where it rains, but mostly it's, it's hot and, you know, it's, there are breezes off the lake, but it's still very, very hot. And there are big skyscrapers and there's that just beautiful lake. You know, I, I don't know if you've ever been to Chicago, but it's actually quite a beautiful city and it is a, a famously architectural city. And I just try, tried to create its brawny wonder for you. So you felt like you were there. I think that's very very important to the book, the sense that you are transported when you're writing about another era in a very specific place, you want your reader to feel like they've been there. Now, this is your, your, your fifth novel. Um, I get very easy question to finish. I'd say, uh, quite an introspective one for you. Uh, how do you, what have you learned about the way that you work, the way that you are best to tell stories through five novels? You know, I wish I could tell you I had some brilliant formula and I put a little bit of this and a little bit of that and boom, I have a novel. I think that I am an explorer and every single book I write, I try to do something I've never done before. Um, I try to learn something I've never learned before. So therefore, it's always a journey for me, always an exploration and it's never easy. <laughs> I wish that I was one of those people who just had, like I said, a formula. I could just check off the things I've created. It's just not that easy for me. And um, like I said, if I knew where a book was going, I'd be just tremendously bored. So um, I'm still on a journey. I, I'm still in that car with no roadmap. I, I mean, uh, one of my favorite quotes uh, comes from E.L. Doctorow, who wrote Ragtime. He said, when you're writing something, sometimes you just don't know where you're going. But just like in a car trip, you, as long as you can see as far as your headlights light up the road, you can get to where you're going. And I guess I've just got my headlights and I'm off on a journey. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Jenny Fields for coming on the show. Uh, if you fancy a bit of that action, if you want to grab yourself a copy of the book, you can use the link that we've got in the podcast notes wherever you're listening. And it's over at writersroutine.com. Next week on the show, uh, we've got Alistair Humphreys on, who is uh, an author. He's a podcaster. I mean, who isn't? But he's a podcaster. Uh, and he's also an adventurer. And it's the adventures that really got me so fascinated in the work that he's done he uh he's he's run the marathon de sable across the, the sahara desert he's climbed mountains he's biked across the whole world um he's into micro adventures as well which are little things that you can do every day if you're like at the moment i'm i guess because of lockdown i'm really fascinated by having adventures doing stuff that's out of the normal if you're kind of thinking the same, I think it's a brilliant chat. It's a gateway chat to get you started, I reckon. Uh, and he doesn't just talk about that. He's got some brilliant advice and tips on getting your story down as well, getting your experiences down on the page. That is next week with Alistair Humphreys on the show. In the meantime, please do leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts if you have a spare second. Follow us on Twitter at WritersPod. Let us know what you think at writersroutine.com. And if you can, 
I'd love your support on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash writers routine. If you can spare a dollar or so a month, whatever is fine. We really appreciate it. And I'll see you next week with uh, Alistair Humphreys on writers routine. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.